You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Over the next two Sundays, I'm going to do something for the first time in all my years of preaching. I'm going to preach on the exact same passage two weeks in a row, back to back. So (laughs) I hope you liked one of my favorite stories in all the Gospels, because you're going to hear it all over again next Sunday. One of the reasons I think I keep coming back to this passage is because I always find myself looking at it from two perspectives. On the one hand, based on the way Luke frames this encounter for us, we are able to view all that happens here from the outside looking in, if you will, as observers who are able to see what's really going on all the time from the very beginning. This is the point of view that we're going to be talking about today. And I'll share more about that second perspective, the other way we can look at this story next Sunday. So hold on for that. For now, let's enjoy our view of this story as spectators, taking everything in from a distance and therefore getting to see the big picture here. And after all, the ability to see is one of the themes of this fascinating story. For here, we see two disciples, one of them named Cleopas, taking a seven-mile hike from Jerusalem all the way back to someplace called Emmaus. Luke specifically points out to us that they started this journey on the same day Jesus was resurrected. Why were they leaving Jerusalem now? Just when things were starting to get interesting. We don't know for sure, but based on the conversation they have later in this passage, it seems likely these two guys were hightailing it out of Jerusalem on Sunday as soon as they possibly could in order to avoid danger. They didn't leave on Saturday because that would have violated the Sabbath. They're getting out of town, and they're getting out of town quick, because when your leader is caught, tried, convicted, and executed as an enemy of the state, your status as one of his disciples immediately puts you at the top of the most wanted list, likely to meet his same tragic end. And so, Those once but now former disciples let their feet do the talking as they stop following Jesus and start heading in the opposite direction, away from Jerusalem. We see these two hopeless men conversing back and forth as they continue in stride together, as they're putting some distance between them and the cross, talking to themselves. The two of them are trying to make some sense out of what just happened. They get so lost in their conversation, they don't seem to notice the stranger who sidles up right beside them. We can see that it's Jesus who has joined them on their journey. But don't miss this. These two men can't see this at all. It's actually one of the funnier moments of this encounter, and there are several of them, but this is one of the funnier moments when these two would-be disciples unknowingly chide their master, Jesus, for not being able to see what's going on, all that just happened. And the truth is that's how blind they are. As they relate the events of the past, 
all that went down over the last week in Jerusalem, these two men have the right information. They've got all the facts straight. They correctly observed and heard what had happened, notice. But now, walking along the road, they can't seem to recognize their former rabbi standing next to them, that the very person they are talking to is the one whom all this news that they share is about. Jesus is a stranger to them. These two men can't see Jesus at all, but Jesus sees them. And let's not downplay the significance of this, that even when we can't see Jesus, Jesus still sees us. How often, like these two disciples, can we have all the knowledge about Jesus, right? We know all the facts. Like them, we can recite chapter and verse about what happened to Christ, about what Christ did for us. We can tell people, we can tell ourselves, and yet still struggle to actually see where and how Jesus is present and working in our lives. And then believing we are walking alone, we become convinced that we're on our own. Can I get an amen from some of you? We start blazing our own trail. We start going our own way in whatever direction seems best to us because we have no sense. <laughs> we have no awareness, no perception of Jesus being anywhere in the vicinity of our lives. No sign of Jesus being in the midst of what we're going through, of what we are experiencing. But, but here, for us as observers of this encounter, we're able to perceive something these two disciples cannot at first. Here, we are able to see what we often can't see when we're walking in their shoes. When we're not standing back observing, but when we are on the journey of our lives. And it's this, that Jesus sees us even when we can't see him. More than this, we can see that Jesus comes to us to where we are and is walking alongside us even when we don't recognize him. So after these two guys relate what they think, they've seen, what they perceive, they know, Oh my gosh, Jesus leads what is probably the best Bible study ever. I mean, who wouldn't want to audit this class? Sign me up. And to those of us who mistakenly think, who've said before, oh, you can't find the gospel in the Old Testament, take note here, Jesus doesn't miss a beat. Jesus doesn't say, you know, yeah, I'd love to explain the good news to you guys, but you're gonna have to wait until some people write down all that I said and did a decade or two from now. You know, you're gonna, just gonna have to wait until a couple of guys named Peter, Paul, and John, you know, they write a few letters about me. Then, then, wait till then, and then you can get the gospel. No, that's not what happens here. Jesus, the one to whom the whole story always pointed, goes, can you imagine it, goes from Genesis and the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the story of first Moses, then Joshua, then through all the judges and Ruth, 
Then through the history of the rise, the split, and the fall of Israel under King Saul, David, and Solomon, all the way through the time of the exile and the voices of the prophets, and along the way, all those various messianic passages in the Psalms, Jesus takes them through all this to reveal to these two travelers the gospel, the good news of God's plan for all creation in the pages of the Old Testament. But notice, these disciples still don't get it. Even when Jesus led the Bible study, they got nothing out of it at first. Isn't that crazy? They still can't see. They still can't recognize Jesus. Yes, from what Luke later shares with us about their conversation after this is all over, their hearts were burning as Jesus spoke. And yet, in the moment, as Jesus is leading the Bible study, they can't make the connection. They couldn't put it all together to understand who was with them. So an encouraging word here, if you ever didn't get it during the Bible study, if you're not getting it right now with this sermon, if you haven't been getting it for a while when it comes to others talking to you about God's word, fear not, worry not. Don't beat yourself up because apparently you are in good company. This story reminds us that we need help to get the gospel. This story reminds us that getting the good news about Jesus is not first a matter of human work. It's not just about opening up our Bibles. It's not about just attending a lot of Bible studies. It's not even about listening to a continual stream of great sermons. Getting the gospel is not ultimately about reasoning our way into its logic because God's ways are not our ways. The way of Jesus, the way of divine grace, in fact, defies our human logic. Getting the gospel is also not dependent upon us generating all the feels. Getting the gospel doesn't happen because it rings true to me or it pricks my emotions because it speaks to my heart or my experience. That's great if it does, but that's not how we get the gospel because we don't first get the gospel. The gospel first gets us, takes hold of us. Let us pay attention to how this story ends. Jesus, as the sower, has been scattering the seed of the gospel as he walks along the road with these two travelers. But, as we see, the seed doesn't take root until later, right? It doesn't take root until later. At the end of the day, when these two men needed to rest, it doesn't take root, it doesn't begin to flourish until they were resting, abiding, coming to the table with Jesus. It was then that they began to finally see. It was only when Jesus did something, when Jesus took the bread, when he gave thanks for it and broke it, it was only when Jesus did something that they were able to recognize who he was. It was only when Jesus opened their eyes that they made the connection between the earlier burning in their hearts and the revelation of the gospel through the Bible, through the word, made flesh among them in Jesus Christ. In many ways, this wonderful story serves as a reflection of the life of a Christian, of what's going on even when we can't see for ourselves, of how we ever end up seeing what's good at all, 
of how we come not just to know about Jesus, but come to understand that Jesus is truly with us and for us. This story reveals how Jesus sees us even when we can't see him, that Jesus shows up, that Jesus comes to us even when we stop following him, even when we are walking in the wrong direction. It reveals that Jesus opens our eyes so we can recognize him, that Jesus opens our eyes so we can recognize the good news he brings into our lives and into this world. My friends, life is a journey, and the journey of life can take many different paths, as we know. Sometimes we try to find or even to blaze our own trail, our own path to God. But what we see here, and we see this again and again in the scriptures, there is only one way we get to God. And it's not a truth we create or even decide upon. It's not through a life we shape or build on our own. Life is a journey, and on that journey, we don't come to God. We don't find God. God finds us. God comes to us in Jesus Christ. What we are looking at after Easter are what are known as the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Think about that for a second. They're called the post-resurrection appearances. They're not called the Jesus sightings, where the disciples are just walking around Jerusalem and Galilee, playing, if you will, the biblical version of where's Waldo, where's Jesus, and eventually spotting the risen Christ in the midst of wherever they are or where at whatever they're doing. And in that moment, then shouting out loud, hey, everybody, look, I found Jesus. I discovered the Christ. No. In every instance, we see post-resurrection. What we have are not sightings, but the appearances of Jesus, where the risen Christ suddenly and often unexpectedly, surprisingly, shows up out of nowhere. We've witnessed Jesus show up in the midst of locked doors in the upper room. We've witnessed Jesus show up a week later, right? In the midst of ongoing doubts and disbelief by Thomas. We've witnessed Jesus show up at the end of the workday as the disciples start to return to shore with empty nets and no fish. And last week, we witnessed Jesus show up in the awkward, unresolved, unspoken space of our failures as reflected through his fireside chat with Peter. And here today, we witness Jesus show up as two disciples are on their way to Emmaus. It's Jesus's idea to show up and tag along. Don't miss that. It's Jesus's idea, his initiative. They don't find him along the way. No, Jesus comes to them. Jesus comes to us. So we need to stop, okay? We need to stop saying things like, since I found Jesus. We need to stop saying things like, well, when I took Jesus into my heart, we need to stop saying stuff like this. And we need to stop saying it because we might give others, we might even convince ourselves of the wrong idea. We don't take Jesus anywhere into our life, into our heart. We don't take Jesus anywhere, people. Jesus takes us places. Jesus takes us 
into his heart. Jesus takes us into his life. Jesus isn't our possession to clutch when we are afraid or we need help. Jesus possesses us. Jesus takes hold of us and we need that. We need Jesus to take hold of us, especially when we're going in the wrong direction, especially when we're totally confused because only Jesus can open up our eyes to the truth. Only Jesus can open up our minds and our hearts to perceive the gospel as more than just a bunch of information, more than just a collection of stories and scriptures. Only Jesus can open up our eyes to see the gospel as the way of life, our only way of life. We need Jesus to open our eyes so we can see him, so we can recognize him, so we can not just know what the good news is, but so that we can actually begin to experience it, so that we can have it change our point of view and transform the direction we are walking in our life. <laughs> Did you know that Emmaus has never been located geographically. Did you know that? Scholars have been unable to determine its location back then in the time of Jesus and still have not been able to locate it to this day. Now, I don't want you to go too far with this. Eventually, I'm certain, as with other places, archeologists will discover it. I'm not suggesting Emmaus wasn't a real place, but it calls to mind a quote of one biblical scholar in light of the fact that we don't know where Emmaus is. He said, maybe Emmaus is nowhere. Maybe Emmaus is everywhere. And I like that thought. If we put aside both Jerusalem and Emmaus in this story as geographical locations, put that aside for a second, and let us consider Emmaus and Jerusalem as representatives of the two opposing poles in, the, in our journey with Jesus, I think that can be insightful. Because I think Emmaus in this story functions in many ways as the place we want to get away to. It stands in stark contrast to the Jerusalems of our lives, right? The places of our pain, our sorrow and loss, the Jerusalems of our lives, the places of our unmet expectations and disappointments, the Jerusalems of our lives, the places where our lives fall apart. No one wants to stay in that place. These two guys sure didn't. So we head for Emmaus, right? We head for Emmaus. We head to the place where we can escape from life. We go to Emmaus. Emmaus, our anywhere place. Anywhere in the sense that anywhere is better than where we are now. Better than the pain, the sorrow, and the loss of Jerusalem. But it's interesting. After their encounter with Jesus, did you catch this? Luke tells us that Cleophas and his companion immediately, they didn't sleep on it, immediately left Emmaus and headed back Toward Jerusalem. And if we read on in this chapter, chapter 24, we see Jesus was already in Jerusalem when they returned. Why go back to Jerusalem? Maybe it's because Emmaus is where we try to go to escape life, but Jerusalem is where we learn and grow in actually experiencing life. Maybe it's because Emmaus is the life we try to create for ourselves, right? The home of our own, we try to build on our own. And Jerusalem, on the other hand, is where we make our home in Christ. Jerusalem is where we die to ourselves and live into the house that Jesus is building for us all, the place he's already prepared for us. I don't know, but what I do know is that a lot of us are in Emmaus mode right now. We want to be anywhere but where we are. 
We want to be anywhere but in the continued pain and suffering of this Jerusalem moment. We're done. We're done with social distancing. We're done. We're done with restrictions on our movement. We're done with not having answers to what comes next. And so we are starting to assert ourselves. We are starting to make our own way based on what we believe, based on what we know, based upon what we see, and not what anyone tells us or shows us. And I get that mentality. (laughs) I share that mentality at times. I understand the temptation of that attitude. But as I, like you, wrestle with the tension between safety and health concerns, and the need for many to get back to work in order for all of us to be able to secure our basic needs, I find myself trying to balance those two concerns now more than ever questioning what I actually can see and how much I think I know. I find myself wondering if the first and only question I should be asking is what does Jesus want me to see right now? Where is Jesus? What is Jesus seeking for me to understand in this moment? How is Jesus framing the reality of our choices right now? My friends, have you even asked him? Are we even paying attention to Christ in this moment? Because again, I can't speak for you, but this story reminds me I need to be careful, very careful of what I think I see of how much I perceive that I know. This story reminds me of how utterly dependent I am upon Jesus. Beloved, Jesus sees us right now, even if we can't see him. Jesus comes to us in this moment, even as we are all starting to go in our own direction. And Jesus will reveal himself as he does here. Jesus will speak into our hearts. Jesus will open our eyes to see but he's not going to do it according to our schedule or plan. He is going to do it as he always does according to his will and his way. My friends, we can talk a lot about how we follow Jesus with our lives. We can say that we follow Jesus with our lives, but now is the moment when it becomes clear, crystal clear in which direction we are actually heading. Are we going his ways or our own? Because from this encounter, we learn believing isn't always seeing. But when Jesus gives us eyes to see, believing means taking him at his word and following his lead rather than going our own way. As your pastor, as your brother in Christ, I hope and pray we remember this, that we look first to Christ together in the decisions that we make in the weeks and months ahead.